Fangoria has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. This gorgeous magazine is highly collectible and is delivered right to your front door four times a year. Each issue is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking, past, present, and future with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including your intrepid KingCast hosts. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, well, you'll need to subscribe. And in order to do that, all you got to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. Y'all can save a whopping 25% off your order if you use the code KingCast at checkout. (coughs) Now, with all of that said, let's get on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi, and I'm Scott Wampler, and we are your hosts. Today we have a packed house, gang. Uh, as we're joined, <laughs> we're testing the limits of our uh, of Zencaster's ability to handle a group of people with this one. We're joined not just by a single filmmaker, but a whole damn filmmaking family. If you've paid attention to the indie horror space at all, then you've likely noticed their head-turning projects like Hellbender, The Deeper You Dig, The Hatred, among others, and their newest film, Where the Devil Roams, premieres at this year's Fantastic Fest. Please welcome John Adams, Zelda Adams, Toby Poser, and Trey (laughs) Lindsay, collectively known as the Adams Family, to the KingCast stage. Welcome, everybody. Hello! Thank you so much for having us. Hi. Yeah. I feel like we need to do like a Mickey Mouse Club like roll call so everybody like knows who's speaking. Everybody will be like, hi, I'm blank. Yeah, let's do that because so people know everyone's voices. Yeah. This is John's voice and I'm dad. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I'm I'm Toby and uh, I'm mom. Very I, well. I am Zelda and I am daughter. <laughs> This is so weird. I, and uh, and I'm Trey, and I'm adopted. <laughs> the redheaded stepchild of the Adams family. Yeah, we well. keep him chained up in the basement. Do effects. <laughs> so, I, I believe we're only missing Lulu. Is that correct? Correct. The other daughter. Do you have any other uh, any other people that you that you like or pull out whenever you need like extras or anything? Or we have a beautiful crew of people we work with, but this is the core. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, this is about as much as we can handle on the show. So, <laughs> so I, I'm uh, I'm very happy to have have y'all here. Um, you came highly recommended, obviously, by our mutual friend David Desmalchen, who hooked mm-hmm. us up. If people uh, remember uh, when David came on the show, uh, we we spent about a third of the show with him, like going, "Hey, I'm going to help you book future episodes." <laughs> And this is the first fruits of of that labor, I guess, is uh, he was just like, oh, I know this person. I'm going to hook you up with this person. I know this person. They would be great on the show. And uh, I believe that you guys were the first people he brought up, if I'm not mistaken. That was a fun episode and super nice of him. I like hearing him talk about uh, barfing when uh, he had food poisoning when his kids were on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The Goulet brothers. Yeah. What a great dude. Yeah. Yeah. How do you how do you all know him? I honestly just think through Instagram, like we became mutuals and yeah, I think so. Social media. 
Social media, it's crazy. <laughs> Especially today, as we're recording this, this is the, the day uh, that Elon Musk decided that we're not going to be allowed to block anybody on Twitter anymore. Uh, which has been uh, uh, which has been something of a uh, of an interesting roller coaster amongst my uh, my timeline and text threads. Uh, <laughs> which you know, if I, I mean, every day is that that kind of thing with with Elon. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, those the- messages in the. The closer cemetery. (laughs) 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 We won't go past. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like Elon's removing the the deadfall. Yeah. Yeah. So I am, I'm just fascinated by what y'all do. The fact that you are a, a, a family that makes horror films together. It sounds like if there were a TV show about a family that made horror movies together, I wouldn't buy it. (laughs) Um, and maybe it's because, you know, I'm from, I'm a child of divorce and I don't have any brothers and sisters. So a very small family that didn't go the distance, you know, ultimately. But I also like, I feel like everyone I know, their family is some degree of kind of fucked up. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's a lot of drama, especially people with a lot of brothers and sisters and stuff like that. So I find way that you're able to do something as complicated as making a film together, like truly astounding. That's um, how, how are you? How are you doing this? Like, what is what's the matter with y'all? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess the truth is we are all just super fucked up. We've just found a way to channel it through horror films together. <laughs> um, but you know what? In all honesty, my sister and I, like we grew up in a super chillax home where John and Toby were like, just super awesome and open about like what, what life is like, what, what drugs are like, what everything is like. So it kind of just created this wonderful environment where we all were equals, you know, I call Mm -hmm. them John and Toby. Occasionally if I need something, I'll say mom and dad, but it's (laughs) like, it's really great because whether it's parent child dynamic or filmmaking dynamic, we're equals and I really appreciate it. Yeah. So what, there must have come a day where one of y'all said, you know, what we should do is just make a fucking horror movie. Like, is that what happened? And then you did it. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> tell uh, me that. Tell me that story. We were in Los Angeles. I had been on a reality kind of TV show where I was like a jackass and that worked for me. But um, Toby was had been had had great career acting. And then suddenly out in Los Angeles, things started to slow down because Hollywood kind of forgets that women become more and more interesting, more and more beautiful. And so her role started to diminish and she was frustrated. And um, I said, why don't you just write a script? We could do like a ghost story. And, you know, I had seen how the production angle of everything worked because being on this TV show, I really liked watching the, the, you know, cinematographer and the sound guys and really fun to talk to. And, you know, technology and our dreams converged right on time because we bought a Canon 5D and a Sennheiser mic and and we hit a YouTube channel on how to edit. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that that's wild. what happened. And we made a movie and it was full of lumps. But some people said, hey, this is really cool. You should keep going. And we did. 
<laughs> that your origin story sounds suspiciously like the origin story of the king cast where <laughs> scott and i had no no real fucking idea how to do a podcast i'm like we know how to talk to people we know how to talk to each other that's should be all we need right but then you do hit those things where it's like all the little things you don't think about it's like okay what kind of microphones do we need to use like what what kind right. of software do we need to use to record like what how do we get you know your podcast on on apple podcasts like like all this stuff Mm -hmm. and i did the exact same thing i'm like youtube has the answer and by god youtube had the answer like (laughs) i need to know how to edit audio for the for the first time in my life look at look at youtube it's got me covered baby you know (laughs) so true and if we had known how completely ignorant we were and the mountain that we had to climb we definitely wouldn't have done it but we were <laughs> just we just blissfully walked in there blind <laughs> yeah ignorance can be a really good thing <laughs> you just walk in and and you don't have obstacles you you're sort of naive and you just say i can do this and then you're doing it and and yeah and look at you now look at y'all like look at i i you i i feel like you're um, your your film the the films that y'all are making are getting progressively more and more refined and streamlined and um, like it's clear you're learning along the way, which is a really cool thing to see. You know, it's it's cool that people saw the what was the first one? Our first one was Rumble Strips. That was our first film, but our first horror film was called The Hatred. Hmm. Okay, so it's it's cool that people saw the potential inside of that and that y'all took your lumps as you put them and, you know, uh, turned them into lumps of sugar or, (laughs) you know, made them, you know, continue to refine your process and grow as filmmakers. I thought Hellbender was fucking awesome. And thank you. And I'm, uh, I'm particularly excited to see uh, where the devil roams at fantastic fest. You guys are, are coming into Austin. Uh, uh, with the movie next month. Well, I is it? I from, guess it depends on when this airs. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, it's at the end of September, third week of September. We'll be there as well. What can you tell us about Where the Devil Roams? Where the Devil Roams is about a family of sideshow performers with a little bit of a uh, murder on on the side of show of their sideshow and. Uh, <laughs> And when things start to go terribly wrong, it's up to the, their daughter, Eve, who's out of place, to put the pieces back together, <laughs> literally and figuratively. It's a, it's our Depression-era carnival film, and, and uh, we have blast making it. So you are playing straight-up carnies. Yes. Yeah. But kind That's of like the lamest carnies. Like, what's, what's fun about the film is, like, we're just so bad. Like, we're the worst <laughs> carnies on the circuit that's already a bad circuit. Right, <laughs> right. Like you're bad in the sense that you're criminal or bad at being carnies? A little bit of both. Yeah, bad at being both. (laughs) Like we're just like some sorry ass characters that are completely defective, but in love as a family, you know? And it's, it's a fun, it's a fun, brutal, but loving movie. So, and this is set in the, 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 during the depression. So this is a, a period piece. How did you find uh, approaching something that was going to, you know, every frame of this movie, every single thing that appears on in frame in this movie, you knew it would have to be period accurate or at least, you know, pass for that. Um, what what sort of challenges did that pose? This is the best time to bring Trey into the conversation. because <laughs> Trey 
gave us the confidence and the technology to shoot whatever we wanted to shoot in the foreground. And he was able to bring a complete, wonderful carnival background to it. And Trey, you'll have to explain how you did that magic. Oh, it was just, um, I mean, with each film that I get to work on with the Adams, it's, it's always a chance to kind of try new stuff. And, and on this one in particular, um, I got to kind of indulge in my love of matte paintings. Um, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of sort of painted environments to extend the frame and, and, and kind of flesh out what they had already built. They had already built these wonderful sets, um, you know, basically shooting on their property in their backyard and they build these wonderful sets. And I was just there to kind of help fill the rest of the frame and help set the tone for a lot of these scenes. But uh, yeah. When you say matte paintings, are you talking about digital matte paintings? Or are you talking about actual like painted on glass, old school style matte paintings? Um, in this case, it was all digital matte paintings. Um, but it was it's really the first time I've been able to do that on right. their movies. And it's something that I always like doing. You know, um, I like doing since I was a kid. Everything that I've been doing with the Adams is stuff that I've been doing since I was like, you know, 12. It's like, you know, making weird little movies of my own on super eight, but now I get the chance with computers to kind of uh, composite them in a way that they kind of live more realistically than just, um, you know, the ways you could shoot them, you know, when you just were limited by the camera you were filming on and stuff. So, um, yeah, so I did take advantage that, you know, they were, they were digital paintings, but they were still painted. Um, There's a, there's a program on the iPad called procreate, which allows you to paint with a pen, um, with, with, you know, with, with brush strokes and paint and uh, digitally, but it still looks and feels like kind of traditional media. And so I ended up doing it. I I did a lot of the paintings on my iPad and composited them into the background. And it kind of adds to the whole kind of handcrafted feel because even if it doesn't look a hundred percent realistic, it feels like the period. It feels like the movie, it feels handcrafted. So it sort of fits in with everything else they're doing. Right. Yeah. That's what I, just what I was thinking is that, you know, the, these, you you had two kinds of of matte paintings back in the day the the hand painted ones you had the ones that you never know, knew were matte paintings then you had the ones that were like just beautiful pieces of art that you couldn't help but just appreciate even if you did spot that it was a painting that you know that was covering two thirds of the screen and then the characters were walking in the distance and like the bottom third or whatever you know absolutely um and there's just something about the the artistry of of that. I think that it's something that's lost a lot in in uh, big budget filmmaking, where people get excited about modern tools like the volume for like the Mandalorian or whatever, where it's like this in crazy, crazy, incredible you know series of of high definition monitors that may you know that can just turn on and like that's really neat and all that. But it also then kind of locks in a very I don't know. It, 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 it makes things a little less uh, magical to me because you do miss that, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, that whole argument on, you know, digital versus practical and, and, you know, like I'll take a janky practical effect over a, a mediocre digital effect any day, just because there's something tangible about it. You know, there's, there's something that, that it's one less barrier between me and the story that I'm watching. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Totally agree. And, and, all the Adams films, we try to do that too, kind of, kind of melding the best of both worlds. We shoot so much practically in terms of the, the makeup effects and, and, and things like that, but being able to kind of take the, take digital advantage of painting out, you know, strings and rigs and all those things that kind of you use to support the practical stuff, but it's still practical. Um, So it's, in some ways it's fun because it's, you know, it's, it's the best of both worlds. And it's like once, once everybody kind of switched over to CG, it's almost like they forgot about all these techniques that are, 
awesome and and yeah. and are beautiful and they work and, and most of the time they look better than a full CG shot anyway. So uh, I'm just a big fan of combining you know old and new and practical and digital. Um, so. Well, Trey, yeah. another thing that you did wonderful in Where the Double Roams is, you know, we were driving around the country with Hellbender when we came up with the idea for this. So we filmed a lot of Midwest cities mm-hmm. and we filmed a lot of like theaters and we filmed a lot. Of, we got a lot of like composite B-roll stuff for Trey. And he was able to put them into our A-roll footage in a seamless way. So a lot of the cities that you see, a lot of the roads, a lot of the uh, cars passing by were things that Trey Composited, so they're real images. They are practical images. Right. Even some of our violence, Trey, was like the way you put in like our violence was just like I can't see it. I don't ask questions. I just say, "Hey, Trey, can you make this head roll across the floor?" <laughs> and Trey says, "Yeah, I can make the head roll across the floor." And here it comes, a head roll. You don't ask questions if there if there are one or two less homeless people around uh, <laughs> Trey's apartment. You don't know. You don't know what happened. <laughs> Has anybody seen Lulu? <laughs> <laughs> that effect did look really great, though. <laughs> now this won't be your first time at Fantastic Fest, right? It three's a charm. We're mm, so yeah. happy to be going back the third time. Oh, yeah. We love it. And Are we- you excited to be coming back during the hottest summer in <laughs> recorded <laughs> history? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, hopefully sense. our forty consecutive days, forty plus consecutive days of a hundred <laughs> over a hundred degree uh, weather has broken by then. Uh, if it hasn't, God help us, because they're. I don't know if you've. Uh, been keeping up with it but like they added a new theater into the south lamar so they've essentially taken out the entire lobby so there is no lobby anymore there's just another theater in there so i'm very curious with as hot as is uh as it's been how how fantastic <laughs> fest is going to not cause people heat stroke this year well, so we, we shall see cafe, though right is the cafe still open right to the, the, right? the highball um the, yeah the highball will be open i imagine <laughs> I imagine that place is going to be shorter. I'm going to be selling some drinks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The 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 it'll be good for financially for them for sure. But uh, the highball gets hot like <laughs> just when you have a normal crowd in there. I can't imagine what it's going to be like, you know, during well, during ready. the fest. Uh, but yeah, no, we're we're going to be there. We're we're presenting. Uh, uh, oddly enough, and you know, uh, considering the title you picked, we're presenting the the new Pet Cemetery. We're doing uh, an intro to that screening, and wow. and then we are uh, doing a live show, uh, for a live recording of the Kingcast. Yeah, Beautiful. so cool, so cool, Eric. You, I think when we were talking before, you, I think you gave us a cool idea. You were talking about basically a vampire living in in the heat of austin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that might be a fun idea like vampires in hell yeah. <laughs> it's like the opposite of 30 days of night whatever whatever the opposite of that is it's living in texas during this summer yes i got to imagine though a vampire doesn't give a shit because you know they can't go out during the day anyway right you know they just got to make sure that that coffin is air conditioned when they uh so, at night. so so then so then uh the story is they're familiar it's going to be their renfield having to put up with trying to get victims during a heat wave like this and oh my god nice. go. oh yeah yeah i'm into it boom I'm into it migos it, with extra blood <laughs> we just can't well, the sequel is the sequel to renfield is, is now is now out there so <laughs> so we, this is typically the point in the show where we ask um I guess what their Stephen King origin story is, but that's going to be 
a little different on this one um, <laughs> because if we go, if we went individually with with all of you, it would um, we would be here for a very long time. And um, so I, I think we modify the question to do. Do you recall the first uh, uh, Stephen King adaptation that y'all watched or or read? If that that's the case, uh, together. I remember, I think I was around eight years old, wanting to watch a movie with John and Toby. And Toby was like, oh, I have a great idea for a movie and put on Carrie. And my world was blown. I definitely had some nightmares of like fire and blood for a solid couple of months. But after that, I was like, wait, that was addicting. I want to watch more. So Toby sneaked it in there and it was a really fun experience altogether. Was that your first horror movie? That was my first horror movie. And I thought oh, wow. it was a really good one to start with. Like, pr- pretty feminist, very bloody, and I-, mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah, I'm sure we'd already talked about menstruation, but we probably had more conversations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was your ability to have so many talks at once. Don't be a bully. This is what, what happens, you know, when, when, when you uh, hit puberty. Uh, th- you, this is why men shouldn't have perms. There, there's so many conversations that can happen around that movie. It's funny. It's a, I like the idea of like, you know, if, if you have like sex ed in school or something, they're like, all right, it's time for everyone to have the conversation about the birds and the bees. And then they throw a video cassette in and it's like an instructional video. Your version of learning about puberty was... We're going to sit you down and watch Carrie. Um, <laughs> it was plug it up, Carrie. Yeah. yeah. And why yeah. not bully? Yeah, true, true. You'll be fucked. Yeah. You'll get so, yours. Yeah. So what do y'all, what do y'all think of Carrie in, in general? Like, how do you, where does it rank for you amongst other, other King films and, and horror films? It's a beauty here. Trey, I know Trey, you, you know, such about, so much more than any of us about King. So why don't you answer this one? Oh no! I mean, well, um, it's actually great you bring up Carrie with the Adams family because I can. There's a lot of. Uh, it seems like Carrie and Hellbender have a lot of the same sort of DNA. That sort of coming of age, uh, and also coming into supernatural power at the same time. Um, but I mean, you know, Carrie. Uh, you know, Carrie's just like it's a classic in the sense that the not only was the book King's first, but the movie itself is just such a well-made film. It's like as from a filmmaking standpoint, it's so. Uh, well produced and and you know it kind of announced the arrival of De Palma and King to the whole world. So I mean, even just if you take the even if you take the quality out of it just historically, it's like it's it's definitely got to be in the top five of of uh, you know important King adaptations because before that, King was just a guy who wrote for the nudie mags and his and sold his short stories there. So. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very yeah, true. No, we we've talked a little bit about how how entwined and part of the reason the identity of the show actually was is examining the adaptations of King stuff and you there's no more important adaptation of Stephen King's works that's ever happened even better movies that have happened don't matter as much as Carrie does because Carrie's the one that set the template that's the one that yeah you know helped take him uh, and Tabby and his family out of poverty you know it's like him selling the book rights were great uh, the paperback rights uh, were what actually made them wealthy enough to like, n- you know, be able to quit their jobs kind of thing. Uh, but it's the movie and the movie set kind of a weird precedent for for King stuff, because if you notice, especially those early 
er, those early movies, they were all kind of prestigious events, right? So, you know, Carrie set the tone for that. It was like even Salem's Lot on TV was this kind of prestigious must-see thing, you know, with the filmmaker behind Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, it was like, you know, a real thing. And then you had The Shining with Kubrick and Nicholson. And, and it wasn't really until the 80s when, you know, not to throw him under the bus, but when Dino De Laurentiis kind of got his hands on a bunch of Stephen King stuff, you know, where, you know, we were just getting so, so much and it was not done. Not everyone was done by like an A-list filmmaker, but when you have like Brian De Palma and Toby Hooper and, and uh, Stanley Kubrick, it's like you have uh, this crazy run that he had. None of that would have been possible without Carrie. Like Carrie's carries the, the thing with that, not only being good, it being hugely successful, you know, one, uh, it won Oscars. It's like, you know, it was, it was a real thing. And I believe that that more than anything is probably the most important adaptation of, of King stuff that's happened. You could say Shawshank's a better movie or stand by me is a better movie. Um, and I probably might agree with you on, on some of those things, but I don't think anyone is, uh, more important than De Palma getting carry right. Now I will put my soapbox away. So um, the title that you have brought to us today is Pet Cemetery, uh, as as Eric mentioned earlier. Um, which one of you would like to do the honors and and tell us what the the basic plot of this movie and and novel are? Um, I can dive in. I and, and um, just to kind of throw it out there too, like I was kind of pushing for this when I heard that this was even a possibility because Pet Cemetery is my favorite book of all time. It's my mm. favorite King book. So. Uh, I love it. And I actually find that the movies are kind of hard to live up to the the brilliance of his book. But uh, all that being said, I'm getting ready to kind of clumsily <laughs> talk through the plot, I guess now. So yes, yes. Um, it's on you, Trey. Uh, <laughs> um, Don't fuck it up. So Pet Cemetery basically is about, <laughs> Pet Cemetery is about Lewis Creed and his wife and two kids and, and the family cat moving into a, a small house in uh, rural Maine. Um, Right in front of their house is a, is a little country road that has uh, lots of traffic. And behind the house is uh, deep woods that uh, lead to unusual places. Across the street, Lewis um, makes friends with Judd Crandall, who is sort of a father figure to him. But he's lived there forever and kind of knows all the stories about the area, including the story of the Pet Cemetery, which is a small, um, a, an eerie little place that are deep in the woods behind the Creed's house that uh, because that road is so... Um, dangerous. It, it chews up a lot of pets, and the and the kids since the 1920s have been burying their pets up in the woods and tending to the pet cemetery. Um, which for for Lewis and his family, especially for Ellie, his his daughter, the eldest child, um, it's kind of the first time she has to sort of face the idea of mortality, uh, and she realizes that one day her own cat Church is going to pass away, and that's that's a, a cold truth that she has to kind of face. And of course, in true Stephen King fashion, um, Church does get hit by a car one night mm -hmm. uh, while the rest of the family's away, and and Judd decides to tell tell the whole story behind Pet Cemetery, which is just beyond the cemetery, deeper in the woods. There's a place where you can bury things, and they will come back. And knowing that his daughter is not quite ready to deal with death, and he himself is probably not ready as a dad to have that discussion with his daughter again, he decides to go with Judd, and they they bury church the cat and of course church comes back and um a little later in the story you know church is not quite the same she, she's church isn't uh mean or violent but just definitely not the same right. and uh when his youngest son gage gets hit by a truck right in front of the house um in his grief 
uh, Lewis decides that that might be the answer to keep his family together. And he decides to uh, use those powers deep in the woods to keep Gage alive. And it doesn't end well. Uh, excuse me. Can, can you what 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 happened to to Gage again? Sorry, I, I was I didn't have the right browser open. But can you can you repeat that again? Oh sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, Gage gets hit by a truck right in front of their house. <laughs> oh, I, knew, I knew that was coming. Sorry, it, it, it's a running gag, and when you said it, and you moved on just a little too quickly, as I couldn't hit the button. This is as much morning radio DJ shit as we get, but but it, it's it's come. It, it, this is now it's expected tradition. by the listeners. Yes. Whenever we talk about Gage getting hit by the, the truck, one we we had a really unhinged uh, pet cemetery talk once, where <laughs> where I pulled out that sound effect at, at that moment, and now uh, now it's just become tradition. So. Tradition. <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry, you, you you may finish your your. No, uh, no, no. I, well, I, actually, I mean that's that's pretty much the gist of the story. The movies themselves kind of kind of vary in flavor in terms of uh, how much they follow the book, especially the 2019 version of the movie kind of jettisons the whole last third of the book and writes its own. But uh, um, the main pet cemetery story is basically that it's, it's a a amazing book about grief and horror and all the awful things that could possibly happen to a single family. Has anybody else read the book or or is everybody else just familiar with the movie? It's totally cool. If you're just familiar with the movie, just, uh, yeah, I, I read the book first in 1988 mm-hmm. and it was my first King book. And I just um, listened to Michael C. Hall's incredible performance yeah. narrating it. And I'm a massive fan of, of the book. Like I, I just adore it. Like, like Trey said, he, he too. And uh, so, yeah, I love, love the book. And I could go on for hours about that baby. <laughs> Stephen King famously uh, was a little reluctant to publish that one because of how dark it is. Do you, um, for those of you that have read it, do you consider it King's darkest novel that you've read? You know, to to be perfectly honest, this was, this was, it's in my mind, it's his darkest novel, but I think that's a, a great thing. It was actually the first of his that I read the first novel of his that I read. I read night shift before. Um, but in terms of novels, that was the first one. Right. And, um, it was unusual because I read that when I was a freshman in high school. And then when I came, I, the, you know, I read it repeatedly. And then I came back to it later um, after having kids of my own. And it's the first kind of piece of art that I realized that you <laughs> yourself change the art as much as the mm-hmm. art does. Um, Cause reading it as a parent, it's a completely different experience. Mm-hmm. And, and the tragedy that was sort of invisible to me when I was in high school, it was more just like, this is a cool ghostly tale with things coming back from the dead. When, it, when, you're, when you have your own children and you realize how vulnerable you feel all the time when your kids go out into the world for whatever, yeah. um, the book hits, hits in spots that I don't think any other, any, any other Stephen King book has hit. Um, it really kind of burrows in. And, and um, as brilliant a writer as he is, I don't think he's ever examined the, the idea of grief and the idea of loss as effectively as, effectively as he did in this one. So that's the one thing that I kind of find that's sort of missing from the movies is – uh, granted the movies I guess have to be more commercial in some ways, but that, that sense of dread and uh, the idea of grief itself being sort of the bad guy, everything happens totally. because of everything, everything bad that happens in the book is because they can't accept, you know, that, you know, famously sometimes dead is better. You can't accept yeah. grief. So I um, agree with you, Trey. I think that that in the movie is the one, what, like I love the movie. I think it's really wonderful. I love them both. I, like the, the one that was just done recently too. I think it's, fun and funny but 
I think exact like maybe you're right. It's too dangerous commercially to to like go there. But I think that that's the nugget that if if I was ever to make that movie, I would zero in on the power of that grief through love because right. that's what's terrifying. Absolutely. And that's and th- that's exactly the kind of thing that I see that overlaps with like your films and Deeper You Dig. You got like all of your movies are so family oriented and Deeper You Dig, especially dealing with the death of a child and the supernatural consequences of that. Right. Um, there's so many wonderful parallels that that I can see like you and you guys and King have the same concerns and want to explore it in your own ways. And I, I just love that. Thanks. Yeah. And I think it's also worth pointing out that doing the show, I've like dug up a whole bunch of Stephen King talking like on uh, going and doing like library talks or speaking at universities and that kind of stuff um, throughout the years. And there's a, you know, once again, we were talking about YouTube earlier, great resource and like you can just find these like king speaking to this new england college in 1980 you know he's got a his, he's got his uh his great 70s uh open neck shirt on you know he's got a fucking can of a beer in his hand he's smoking 18 cigarettes in a minute you know it's like he's just going up on there and he's like talking about this stuff listening to him talk about pet cemetery uh in this era is extremely fascinating especially if you want an insight into the guy himself uh, because you know he's it, it, I don't know if you've ever read any interviews with him where he like people always ask him like what scares him and and like he'll he'll almost always have a joke answer right it's always like you know a typo in my thing or some some bullshit you know like that obviously is him just dodging the question or like oh I'm afraid of the dark or whatever uh, when he's like gets a little uh, nakedly honest with the interviewer like especially in this era he always says you know ultimately it's the death of one of my kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is what scares Stephen King. It's not spiders. It's not evil clowns. It's, you know, it's not, uh, undead animals. It is, uh, the death of one of his kids. And he says that like one of his, uh, one of the curses of being an author, uh, with a creative mind that's always churning creatively as his is, uh, is he doesn't just like think about like the concept of, of one of his children dying, he sees it vividly in his mind. Right. And so uh, he said, I think very specifically, he says he he's had like waking nightmares essentially where his brain just won't let go of an image of him walking in to check on one of his kids. uh, And they stopped breathing sometime in the night. And like, he doesn't just, you know, intellectually think about that. He thinks, you know, he pictures it, he smells it, you know, it's like he, he's there in that, that moment. So when you hear him talk about that kind of stuff and then talk about pet cemetery and when, you know, you understand why he was like, this is one that is too far even for me. Cause in that era, he was like talking about, I'm not ever going to publish this. It's like, this is, you know, he's like, he's like, I think it's a good story, but he's like, I'm never going to publish it. Um, and ultimately, I think he ended up having to because he owed one more book to his publisher before he could break right. his contract. Um, and he's like, fuck it. Here's the thing I have sitting around. Uh, but I think the reason why he was he was scared about publishing it is because it it exposes his own uh, fears more than anything else he's ever written. Like, I, and, and, uh, and because of that, there's this personal quality to that book, uh, that is unmatched by any, uh, anything else that he's written, even if he's written, 
you know, say better books or better novels or even more personal novels, there's something just really that cuts to the core of what scares the guy that scares more people than anybody else, you know, in the, in this book, which makes it extremely fascinating. Yeah. And, and you know, something I love, I'd love to mention about the book too. I mean, that, that really comes, comes through. Um, it's what I would call brutal. It's both brutal <laughs> And beautiful, right. this this book in equal measure, and one feeds off and feeds the other. But something that I really adore about the book is also his his love of Maine really pokes yeah. through. You know, when he's up high the first time and looking when they go to the pet cemetery for the first time and they're looking down at the Penobscot River and he talks about the brick of the schools. There's so much love in this in this book. And the way and the language he uses, which is something that I kind of really miss. And, and I'm a fan, actually, of, of both movies for different reasons. No. But the way he describes things is things like the moonlit crypt of night or um, <laughs> that there was goldenrod, the late summer gossip that autumn was in the air. I mean, or, or when the, the the white sheet is when um, Lewis puts the white sheet over Judd's dead body and he says, Tiny rose petals of deepest, darkest red stain the white lawn of the sheet. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. fucking beautiful shit yeah. <laughs> in, in yeah. this film that I, I'm just enamored of. And yet there's the horror, too. Yeah. I mean, that we all know from the book in particular of opening up the casket and thinking the head is missing because it's covered in black you know, rod and moss. I mean, it's, there's, yeah. the, the duality is incredible. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's also something I don't uh, I I think he could write something as equally uh, powerful as Pet Cemetery is, but Pet Cemetery itself is a, is a book I don't think he could write today. Like, uh, you know, his kids are grown. You know, it's like they're out of the house. It's not a constant thing. I I really do feel like this is King, like at the top of his writing powers. Maybe his. Uh, uh, drug fueled writing powers, drug and alcohol fueled writing powers at this moment, uh, you know, where it was kind of a little bit before, you know, those got so out of control that it was like derailing his life, but also, you know, was, was, I don't know. There's just, there's a different flavor to his drug writing than, than there, there is to a sober writing, uh, not saying bad or, you know, for, for good or ill, but there's a different flavor for it. And I, I don't think he could do a pet cemetery today. I don't, that's not saying he couldn't do something, you know, equally as, as impactful. Um, you know, revival obviously jumps to mind recently as, uh, sure. as one that, that <clears throat> hits those same kind of existentially terrifying notes, but you know, this very specific era for King when his kids were still young, when this, you know, fear was still, uh, as fresh as it could be. Um, I, I think that it, it's the perfect storm for this book. You know, to tie this back to with, with the Adams, there's, and I'm, I, this sounds, is like it going to be the drugs? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it sounds like I'm, 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 I'll circle back, but you know, every time I deliver an effect shot, um, one of the things that I always work on, especially with John, um, is the idea of honesty. And it almost doesn't matter if an effect looks uh, completely realistic or fantastical, as long yeah. as it's honest. And, and that was sort of, and, and, and I find that's true of everything that they, all the films that they make, whether it's deciding on a performance or a take or an edit, it's like honesty is always the, the, the word that leaps to mind every time they're kind of evaluating something. And it feels like out of all of Stephen King's work, um, Pet Cemetery, the book specifically is such an honest kind of dealing with grief. Um, 
that I think that's where a lot of its power lies because it's, um, you know, you know, grief is the antagonist of this whole story and, and the honesty with what she deals with it. It's, it's, it's just, it's, that's what gives it all of its power. And that's what's the, that kind of abstractness is what's so hard to translate to cinema um, because you're in the head of the character that's going through the grief, but it's so easy to, to understand and identify with. And as, and even when Lewis is doing these awful things, taking his, child's body up into the woods to do something terrible bury, bury them in the in the on the micmac burial grounds you're st- you can you can completely understand why because it's honest it's exactly what that character would do in that situation and um i don't know i love that i mean i, re- I so, so much of that power i respond to in, in his writing trey i love that too i love that he the father has to make that choice like no matter what the father has, to, if you have that ability to bury your child in the dirt to get them back, you, I would have to make that. And I really love the idea when the child comes back and it's not the same and maybe it's got a touch of evil to it. I love the whole problem of like, well, I'm still going to love it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That is fun stuff. That's exactly. (laughs) This is great. This is what it's all about. Like this is what life is, you know, especially in families. It's like, like you could take that. They don't even have to be brought back from the dead. They could just be brought back from college. And you're like, Oh my God, (laughs) you have really turned into a monster. And I fucking love you so much. Like I'm going to deal with it, you know? And so I love those concepts. And I think that that's, what's fun about horror and that's why we love horror because you can talk about like coming back from college but you can disguise it coming back from the dead and it just becomes a much more glorious conversation right now king king has that's a through line through a lot of king's stuff actually is the person you love is changed somehow Mm. that's that's jack torrance in the shining wendy and danny still love him even though he turned is turning into a a monster, right? It's like mm-hmm. you can't help but have that love for for your family, and of course, you know, Pet Cemetery, as you mentioned, that's that's like a big undercurrent throughout that entire story. Is like it doesn't make any logical sense. You know, it's going to go bad, but you you fucking still when you're reading it, you under you don't want Lewis to take his wife up there, but it's like you know what? At this point, it's like you're he's all in. He's gone. You know, if there's even a chance, he's going to take it, and you kind of. You have to buy it on some sort of level, even if you're sitting there as a horror reader or, you know, viewer of the movie or whatever, just going, what the fuck are you doing? Don't do that. <laughs> you just, like logic just goes out the window, you know, when it, when it comes to like that kind of, uh, that deep familial love that you have for somebody. Yeah. Well, John, if just to, to be, I'll just ask directly if, so if something happened to one of your, your kids or your, or your wife, would you employ the services of the pet cemetery? Hmm. Would I? Absolutely. I would have no problem about it. They'd go right in that dirt, and I would wait right there. <laughs> I, I don't understand the part about going home. Literally. Like, I would just wait there and be like, it's so nice to see you, beautiful. Now let's rock. <laughs> even knowing that they would come back. You know? Even knowing that they would come back, like, you know, evil. But there, but. Okay, I think it's more complex than that. Like, I don't <laughs> think the little kid. It to yeah, maybe I'm fucked yeah, up. I, I'm probably. Fucked up. <laughs> I, I I Judd Judd got what was coming to him. You can go ahead and say it. This is a safe space. <laughs> it's like yeah, exactly right. It, well, he kind of did. I mean, he's the one who opened up the can of worms, so he got the worms. It's like yeah. 
Um, no, I, I would have to. Yeah, I would have to. I'm someone who, if you can just extend it, I'm like the logic of like what they kept talking about in the movie, which was, I thought there might be a chance that this time it would work out better. Well, I would, mm. I would roll those dice. You know, I mean, how could you not? Uh, I, I would definitely roll the dice. Yeah, I think I agree. But like, if one of you guys died, I'd first bury you there. And then maybe I'd dig a grave, kill myself. So I fall into the grave. Wind will blow the <laughs> there soil you go. over. <laughs> <laughs> and I wake up and we're, what the second one is it's like family sticks together yeah yeah i've always thought about if one of my kids died now this is going to be politically incorrect so i mean i don't want to but it's like i've always thought if one of my kids died i would want to quickly kill myself and chase them because (laughs) there's that visual of i would want to be near them in death because i'd be so scared about that chasm and them being alone and that's what this movie's doing in a sense. It's kind of talking about that chasm. Totally. Yeah. That was, and, a, that was a wild answer. I was not <laughs> expecting all that. <laughs> yeah, usually there's a little like hemming and hawing and we you almost everybody that that uh I believe we've asked that question to ultimately ends up in like, you know, in you're in that headspace at that moment and grief will drive you to it and you're just like, oh, no, just like on cold, stone cold sober whatever like i'm taking them right there yeah boom done i'm I'm scraping them off of the highway and taking them right up there there's gonna be no burial we're not doing a funeral there's gonna be no fight you know it's just like (laughs) right from there to the dirt i'm one of those weird people who watches my kids sleep oh and i i like i watch john sleep you know just to make sure they're breathing i listen to toby sleep (laughs) so do i honestly (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I watch Scott sleep. Yeah, we don't, we don't even like live anywhere near each other. So, <laughs> you know, that's another thing too. I mean, the book and both movies are really interesting um, portraits about um, not only parenthood but also marriage. You know, that's something I I I, I like about it. Uh, I like about all all three of them, but also just like the conversation of death. Like each one mm. in a different way has a beautiful kind of conversation about death i think in different ways and in in sometimes in there's like both a normalcy in the book there's often a normalcy of death first through like lewis you know because he's a doctor and then you have judd saying things like well sometimes death takes supper with you sometimes it bikes you in the ass (laughs) and then but then and then but then lewis as the doctor who is who sees the normalcy of death and the opposite the counterpoint to that is Rachel, who was like, no, death is is horrible. And then they kind of like almost do this do-si-do at the end um, where totally. Lewis is like, no, I, I can't accept death at all. Totally. I'm going to put put my kid and then mention my wife in the dirt. Something I like about um, the second, the, ni- the 2019 um, Widmeyer Kolsch movie is that Rachel, I think, is a little more compelling in in in, in that movie, right. um, where she's kind of like, no, you know, she doesn't want to hug her kid. Mm. She says, you, you know, you took him out of, you took her out of the earth, and I think that was, 
I think that was a, that was yeah. powerful. Ooh, I love that. Hug your kid. Yeah. <laughs> Hug your undead child. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and the daughter's like, she doesn't want me here. That's okay. I don't want her here either. You know, uh-huh. and you already know what's coming. But but the other thing too, like there's normalcy, but then there's also this really rich malice to death that he yeah. talks about, especially in, in the book. I mean, like death is like a, a bitch, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think it's talking about Zelda where, yeah. um, she's always saying the, the uh, King is saying, God is generous at doling out death, you know? Um, and I kind of love how dark that is. And right. it's, it's like just darkness into darkness as, as I think the book also says. Now you, you named your Zelda after this Zelda, correct? <laughs> I, exactly. I, I, I sorry, Zelda. We're no, we named her after the other Zelda that burned up. <laughs> okay. That was bad too. I'm sorry. <laughs> Who invited me here? <laughs> That's right. It's time for the mid-roll ad read this week brought to us by the publishers of our friend and New York Times bestselling author Stephen Graham Jones's new book, Don't Fear the Reaper. Have you you read this one? I right? did read it. Yes. 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 We're yes. big fans of Mr. Jones. I read the Jones. hardcover. I'm an OG. Oh, damn. <laughs> Don't Fear the Reaper fan. Don't come at me. Yeah, this one's the sequel to our friend Stephen's previous book, My Heart is a Chainsaw, which we all know and loved. This time around. The action kicks off in December 12th, 2019, when Jay Daniels returns to her hometown, the rural lake city of Proof Rock. Uh, this happens on the same day as convicted indigenous serial killer Dark Mill South escaping into town to complete his revenge killings. Now, you won't find a more hardcore 80s slasher film fan than Jay Daniels, but can she use her encyclopedic knowledge of horror movies to survive when death knocks at her door again? Perfect for fans of true crime podcasts, uh, Stephen King podcasts, specifically ones called The King Cast, and horror films. It's the novel to read this spooky season. Don't Fear the Reaper by Stephen Graham Jones is out now and available wherever books are sold. And guess what? You're going to be hearing Mr. Stephen Graham Jones on The King Cast again very soon. So please look forward to that. And is that it, Eric? That's it. That's all we got for the mid-roll. So it's time to jump back in with those crazy Adamses. I have a question. Sure. And and I've listened to your other episodes on Pet Cemetery too. And something I would love to to ask you guys or Trey, anyone, you know how like in the book there's this scene about the Wendigo, and right. it's, I'm not sure it's even mentioned in the first movie. I know they kind of glean, you know, they they mention it slightly in the 2019 one, and you kind of see something in the woods. Right. And um, Judd mentions it in that. But why do you think? Let's talk about the Wendigo. Dropping the Wendigo bomb on the 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 pet cemetery conversation. It's it's honestly been a while since I read the novel, and since it's not really covered in the films, I need a I need a refresher on what exactly it, it gets said about the Wendigo in it. Vespi, have you read this more uh, recently? Yeah, than I mean, more definitely more recently than than you have, but it's. Uh, uh, not so recently where it's I could describe to you in detail what what is said, but my memory of it while I was reading it was essentially like, OK, so Stephen King is playing with the whole uh, Indian burial ground thing and he just wanted to throw in, you know, some sort of 
Native American, uh, Native American legend, right? Yeah. You know that that kind of fits in there. Or he wanted something that was beyond just just the uh, dead coming back to life from the from the cemetery. That there was something more about not just the ground being haunted and sour, but like the surrounding area as well. That that was the impression I had while reading it. But uh, again, the details, as you can tell with how I fumbled my uh, my explanation of, of what I remember the Wendigo being are, are a bit fuzzy. So, yeah, no, I think you're right. Yeah, for me, like it, it wasn't really necessary in the story. And, and I, I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head. Trey, do you have any anything further yeah, I kept I kept thinking of it in terms of I mean King is a is wonderful, but he's also a very practical writer. So it might have even just as been been as simple as a story need to like that that walk from the deadfall to the Micmac burial grounds needed to have some other sense of threat to kind of give it a little touch of haunted house and that feeling that we're passing beyond the veil to where kind of normal rules don't apply anymore. So I mean the the beautiful thing is that he writes about the Wendigo, the way Lovecraft writes about, you know, Cthulhu. It's like, you can't really picture it in your head. He never describes like some sort of deer legged monster. It's always this sort of elusive sense of uh, presence that moves within the woods. And if you, if you make too much noise, you're going to reveal yourself to him. And it, it does add a whole layer of creepiness. It's sort of like, um, I don't know, kind of softens you up and makes you a little bit more ready by the time he gets to the, the actual burial grounds to bury his, his kid or the cat, um, it sort of softens you up in a nice way. So you're really in the moment, but it might be something as simple as like just storytelling practicality. He needed that little extra umph to make the journey mm-hmm. more disturbing. Well, yeah. Love, uh, you said something about the woods. Like I loved in the second pet cemetery or the most recent one, when the little girl says, Daddy, I can hear the woods. Right, I, that right. was my favorite line in the movie. I was Inside. like, oh, you nailed Creepy. it. And, and that was so fun. And that's kind of like, I think what you're saying, Trey, is like, that's what the Wendigo is. You know, it's that- I think it also, I think it also opens up uh, uh, just a, a little bit of King being able to talk about just how remote and not of man this place is, right? This isn't a place for man. This isn't a place for people at all, right? And that uh, if there is going to be a Bigfoot or a Wendigo or, you know, a cryptid or something, it'll be in one of these, you know, places that that people just don't go, you know? And, and this is, you know, yet another f- thing that keeps it forbidden, you know? It's a, it's almost like saying there's a unicorn in there, you know? Like, all these things that people aren't right. meant to be there, so we've never seen this, you know? Right. And, and I don't, it's... I don't know what I what we can say about the mm. uh, Pet Cemetery prequel that's coming, but it's I, I do think it's worth noting here since this came up that the the prequel is specifically a prequel to the 2019 movie, mm-hmm. oh, oh. and that you there's quite a bit in there about the you know the origin of the cemetery itself, or at least right. like the. Uh, people's first experience with it that to me was like some of my favorite shit in the movie. So if, if the Wendigo angle um, has you curious, uh, Toby, like look forward to learning a bit more about kind of some of the history there in the, uh, in the new one that's coming out. Well, that's cool. Cause yeah, it's something that's stuck with me and I've always wondered yeah, like I, 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 it's like something dangling in front of me. So I'll look, I'll look forward to that. Yeah, right on. 
Now, something that we we can probably talk a little bit about are we you've mentioned the remake a bit you've mentioned uh the mary lambert original there's also the mary lambert's like really bizarre sequel that she made <laughs> in the early 90s with edward furlong and clancy mm-hmm. Brown. uh something i really love about her, the very first movie I, i'm still not super hot on the second one like it's fascinating it's interesting clancy brown's having a good time but it just doesn't feel right to me. You know, it, it feels like fan fiction a little bit, you know, uh, but but that first one has a lot of the, that uh, impending sense of dread. And then the remake, uh, you know, I have issues with the remake, too. But, you know, something I think it, it nails is just that that feeling that you get while you're reading the book where, like, you know, Lewis is digging himself deeper and deeper. Uh, he gets past the point of no return there's like this cursed feeling, right? There's at a certain point, there's nothing he can do. Uh, he is just all in like, you know what I mean? It's like at a certain point, the hooks are in and you just know you're writing it to a dark ending. Right. And, uh, uh, and that's what we get with both films. And I'll always appreciate that, you know, that both attempts, uh, embrace that darkness because that, mm-hmm. that's something that I think could easily have been noted out of a studio adaptation of this, where it's like, there's, Maybe, maybe the kid dies or, you know, but the wife is saved or, you know, the uh, writing the other daughter, you know, the, the other kid in and, you know, and there, there being like a big saving moment or, you know, something where it ends on a happier note, because as, as, uh, as dark as the original movie was like (laughs) with the remake, they're just like, fucking hold my beer. Right. (laughs) It's like, and, and I'll always appreciate a giant wild swing like that. And it's something that I think is fairly unique in, and horror uh, and being able to get away with those kind of just bleak, awful endings. Like the only other thing that I think that like that jumps to mind is, is a rom-com from the eighties called, uh, um, uh, was it the last American Virgin? I believe is what it's called. Right. And, and that, that's a movie that ends on a fucking gut punch and, but hardly ever do, do you get that because the predominant sense in, in uh, studio filmmaking is like, let them leave the theater happy. And uh, the exception to that is, you know, the last American Virgin and uh, horror movies. Um, so maybe we can talk <laughs> a little bit about, uh, uh, about that aspect of Pet Cemetery and maybe why audiences embrace a dark ending like that in horror. And sometimes they don't like they, they kind of revolted against the mist. You know, there's a lot of people that revolted against oh, what Daremont did with the mist. Right. Uh, but a lot of people love it, but you know, it, but still like it's a slasher movie. The killer always comes back. You know, it's like people, people accept the bad guy winning in horror in a way that they don't in other genres. You know, oh. just oh. to throw, th- th- I'm sorry, just to throw this out. Like I've, I've thought about the same question because it is an unusual, like, um, attribute of the horror genre itself that that's really the only one that can kind of get away with it and i've always thought of like you know science fiction is kind of always asking the question like what does it mean to be human and in my mind horror always asks the question of what does it mean to be alive and um by having by the acceptance of bleak endings i think just kind of ties back to almost to like the joseph campbell hero myth of like we are all going to die we know that and horror is the one place where it's okay to kind of face that and rehearse it you know what i mean so yeah uh, there's that element of like uh you know it's honest and 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 when you have the 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 happy ending on a horror movie it almost feels 10 times as fake 
as just having a happy ending on a regular movie. Like you can kind right. of accept it in a drama. You have a happy ending in a horror movie and it's almost a betrayal. Cause like, you know, you're coming to the horror movie to kind of examine truths that aren't, you know, polite. They're, they're not things that you normally, you know, you don't discuss in, you know, polite society. So part of the joy of a horror film is, is like just leaning into those hard questions and, and kind of um, finding solace in the answers, even when they're awful. <laughs> Right. You know, I actually feel like the the first film I would have I had read that they changed the ending with her coming in. You know, it, I would have preferred if it had stayed like in the book. I think that's creepier that right. when she comes in and just lays her hand on his shoulder and says, "Darling," mm-hmm. I find that immensely like creepy. Um, Agreed. Agreed. Just wondering what would, what would happen. Uh, I do think the ending is fun in the second one because, you know, I, I tend to think of the second film not unlike the Pet Cemetery that it's kind of exhumed the the original story and kind of <laughs> res- resurrected it um, with this new narrative and come back different, you know, and which I think is a little is interesting because they, like you said, they took a wild swing and I and I do appreciate that and I kind of since we're a family and have made films where we do want the in our films, um, particularly in the deeper you dig, um, what lengths they go to to stay together, uh, and with our new one as well, with, without mm. spoiling it. So I kind of uh, I kind of appreciate that about about the second one. Now, if y'all were going to put your heads together and adapt a King property for the screen or remake one that's already been made. Uh, is there a consensus on which one y- you would do, or maybe maybe we we get in- individual answers on this one? If not, ooh, that's a great great so question. Gizella, question. what's yours? Oh my! Like, God. assume budget isn't a concern. No legal red tape. You can do whatever you want with it. I've got one. Okay. Well, I love the raft. Mm. <laughs> and um, I, I haven't actually seen seen the the version uh, Creep Show too. Yeah, yeah. I haven't. I have. I haven't seen that, but I've listened to your episodes on it. But um, <laughs> I love that story so much. So mm-hmm. I would say um, we. I would want to do that. Mm. And you pick the one that would have the smallest budget. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. And we haven't really done anything on water. Yet, so I'm willing to go there. Just ask Spielberg; he loves it. Nothing goes wrong. (laughs) I wouldn't touch the mist because it's for me. It's a perfect movie. Mm -hmm. I I would I would love to do The Shining because I think it's so ripe with so many kick-ass things that you could do. It's just so loaded, right? I Um, think it's only a matter of time before Warner Brothers mounts a remake of it. I I just think that. Like, I've had a lot of arguments with people about this because they're like, they'll never do that. But yes, they fucking will. Yes, they, they definitely will. Yeah. You, you know, that's that's a valuable property for them. And um, they're going to exploit it at some point. But I do think that if they're if they're wise, um, they will attach a filmmaker to that. That's so like undeniably powerful that the sort of people that would complain about a remake will kind of have to, you know, 
shut up and see how it turns out. You know what I, you know what I mean? Like yeah. in my mind, it's always Christopher Nolan that's going to do it or somebody like that where. Yeah, Denny Villeneuve or something. Yeah. Yeah. If they announced like we're remaking The Shining, people would lose their fucking minds. 100%. Uh, so like my answer is too dangerous. I'm just saying in a perfect world. Like, <laughs> oh, you know, oh, totally. You totally. win the Powerball and you, you can make anything happen. Yeah. Then what would the you what, what would you do with it? Fun one, you know, what would you do with it? Well, I love the nightmare aspect of it. I love that Danny lives in a world of nightmares, basically. It's like night terror. I had night terror as a kid, so I kind of know like the feeling of, of walking through real life in a dream sense. And I just love that aspect of it. And when I saw it, you know, when I was in eighth grade, um, I, it just resonated with me, that whole idea of Danny's nightmare world. And the fact that like a guy in Florida could could the two of them could converse that made sense to me and i love that about it that's to me the most fascinating part not really necessarily like jack nicholson losing his mind i think that that's that's really cool but what's fun to me is the is the nightmare of the kid i that's this a is cool an exciting movie. pitch i like the idea of yeah it's the shining but it's it's danny centric you know it's mostly yeah. focused on him that's that's Come a, that's a clever take yeah i like that you know and, and, yeah. then, and then everyone you know and then the nice thing is visually cinematography wise the one thing that you could nail that everyone would be like okay is that kid riding down the hallway because that that's the scariest scene of all and nothing happens well no eventually mm -hmm. something happens but i mean when he's first <laughs> riding down the hallway in his big wheels it's genius. And we all know, we all feel like that kid, you know, we've all been that. I'm still that kid when I walk out of the basement. <laughs> right. Totally. Right. Well, the trick on, on the shining though, is you need to get somebody to do it. Kind of like how, um, uh, they ended up remaking Suspiria where you can't, you, you just have to leave the iconography of the past movie behind. There's no <laughs> other way to do it because you can't, yeah. You know, and I think audiences will re will reject it a little bit on that because the whole reason why a studio would would be really psyched to remake it isn't because of the title, The Shining. Right. You know, it's because of the imagery of the two twins and right. you know the bloody elevator and and all that stuff, which like is is very it's Kubrick, like that, that that's all like Kubrick right. editions. So it's like you know i don't know like it it may and i have a feeling why that's a, a little bit why you know king still gets stuck on it a little bit like he i don't think he'll ever admit to it like he has his own very rational justifications for not liking the kubrick version but um you know but i i do think that there's something deep down that the that as the movies gain popularity uh you know and gain this kind of masterpiece status that that i think king resents it just a little bit maybe he acknowledges it maybe he doesn't but i think he resents the fact that something that took such radical departure from from his uh his work you know is being you know considered the main thought when you think of it right like people think of the kubrick version more than they think of of the book version that it, and it's like outliving the novel a little bit and i you know so because of that, you know, I think Flanagan had a really great, you know, solve to that with Dr. Sleep. But, you know, again, now it's a movie that kind of bombed even with all that, you know, mixing the Kubrick imagery and, and the, the King uh, novelistic. Uh, well, that goes and stuff. to your original point. Don't fuck with that movie. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's that's what happened there because he did a great job with that. But it's like nobody. You're right. It's too it was too much of a grand slam. The original, you yeah. Know, no one's going to be the Beatles. Visually, yeah. Don't cover, you know, the white album. 
Yes. Yeah, no. So, but I mean, I think that's kind of why Scott, you know, and I, you know, I didn't vocalize it, but, you know, I think why we're both like kind of our ears perked up when you, you're like, oh, this is the tell it from Danny's point of view. And then because then in my mind, then in my mind, suddenly I'm thinking like, this is like, this is how Guillermo del Toro would approach it. Right. Mm. And suddenly, suddenly I'm getting like devil's backbone vibes or whatever. You're going to get that pan's labyrinth, yes. you know, mixture of, of the, the, the dream world and, and the the waking world and, yeah. and all that. I'm just like, Oh, sudden, suddenly that opens it up to be as visually as stunning as the Kubrick movie without needing to rely on the visuals. He's already established. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Trey, if you were going to do uh, you know, effects for, any King remake or adaptation, you know, is there one in particular you'd want to work on? You know, I always, uh, because I, I always would like the, I, I love the hedge animals at the end of the shining. And it would be kind of, it would be awesome to present those in a way that are as scary as they are in the book, because right. even in the TV movie, it, it wasn't it, it, like the book had this effectiveness that is truly, it would, it would have to all be about lighting and pacing and all this sort of stuff to make it work. But right. Uh, that's such an inherently kind of creepy idea of, of just, you know, the landscape turning on you. Changing, um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so if the Adams ever decide to do The Shining, I'll be right there. <laughs> I'll be there with the hedge animals, yeah. Absolutely. I love Trey. He thinks we have a chance. <laughs> yeah. What about uh, Toby? I think Toby's the only one we haven't heard heard from yet. Oh, uh, I, yeah, I loved The Raft. Uh, oh, Z, Zelda. yeah. yeah. I, oh, I th- oh, Zelda, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, you're okay. good. I think since we're on the topic of Pet Cemetery, I think I would do Pet Cemetery, but switch it around on its back and do a child losing their parent or parents, which mm. is what we did with Where the Devil Roams, but I, I don't <laughs> think we, we were not at all trying to be Pet Cemetery, but I think I would want to explore that through, you know, the myth of the pet cemetery. I think, you know, parents always watch their children growing up and have that fear of losing them, but the same fear is reciprocated the other way around. And right. I think it's just as scary, if not even scarier, because your parents are supposed to be your caretakers and losing them would be wildly hard. So Ooh, yeah. yeah, that's that should that's that's a primal fear. I remember like to your point, I remember um watching uh twin peaks with my parents when it aired you know on on television and when the reveal hit that uh, spoilers for a 30 year old television show when the uh (laughs) when the reveal hits that leland palmer is the one who killed uh laura palmer like the dad killed his daughter i remember that scared the ever-loving shit out of me at that at that point in my life i was so young that it had never even really occurred to me that your parents could just kill you (laughs) <laughs> you know, it was just like what? Yeah. Like that that shit blew my mind. There I, I think you're onto something there. That's uh hey. yeah. <laughs> they yeah. kind of do that, I guess, in Pet Cemetery 2, because you know, it's Edward Furlong and his dad gets, you know, turned, but also the dad's a, a, a dick to begin with. It's not somebody that he's like a fan of, right? Mm. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. His, he brings his mom back. Yeah. It's uh it's this oh, right, friend, right, right, right. His friend's uh dad uh that that does it, right? The the chubby chubby kid. Right, right. The, right. the Clancy Brown thing. But what what's interesting about that and it's it, the same thing that's interesting about the remake of Pet Cemetery is that they play a lot more with 
with what it's like when the dead come back. And it's not just, they instantly go on a murder spree or whatever. It's like they, they live among you and their personality is changed. They're, they, they, uh, they have their more base instincts are, are being fulfilled in pet cemetery too. It's the, you know, he gets, he gets like hypersexualized and he gets like, you know, he's just eating mm-hmm. nonstop. He's, you know, gluttonous and he's just, yeah, it, it's, it's insane. You know, it's like, it's like an insane person more than a zombie that just wants to dress up in little Lord Fauntleroy uh, outfits and, and slice people up with a, a scalpel, you know, it's I like, think, yeah, I think it will be fun. You're, 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 I didn't see the Edward for long one, but I think it will be fun to show how tortured spiritually the returned dead are. I mean, right. That's what would be really fun about it is to show how lonely they are and how misplaced they are and how they actually, they don't eat and they don't have sex and they're basically quite miserable. Imagine bringing back someone from the dead and, and them hating you for it. And, but being alive, I mean, that's a horror movie and that's fun. Like I love exploring the kind of, spiritual aspects of horror and and that would be a fun one if you like a girl brought back her parents and they were so sad yeah, yeah. you know and like torture tortured people sitting in the living room chair you know right. oh yes yeah. stinking up a storm <laughs> <laughs> well this is i'm good news for you guys this is just different enough that you can just go ahead and make that your next project yeah. and not, not call it pet cemetery boom we're coming up with ideas third movie idea just call it parent graveyard (laughs) this is usually the point in the show where we invite our guests to tell people uh the listeners where uh where they can find you um where they can find your movies when they can see where the devil roams let's go through all of that give me your uh give me your self promo pitch Sure. Well, uh, Where the Devil Roams is going to be hitting a bunch of festivals this late summer and fall, including Fantastic Fest, where we hopefully get to bump into you guys. Hell um, yeah, we'll be we, uh, but And then it'll be up uh, in the fall, probably in November, on the usual outlets. And um, Tubi's going to be releasing it as well. And then... Our others, Hellbender, The Deeper You Dig. Actually, all of our films, you can kind of check out from our website, which is wonderwheelproductions.com. And then we're all always on Instagram, adams.family.films. Uh, yeah, we always we like to get on there and talk to people. And yeah. you can find us on Facebook, John Adams. Toby Poser, Lulu Adams, yeah. Zelda, Zelda, Zelda no don't do no Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> um, but one other thing, we do make our own music for our films. That's oh, like one of yeah. our other side gigs that we really enjoy. It's yeah, big part of Hellbender. Yeah, yeah. It's like grunge and alt and fun. Uh, a combination of all of our different like music styles and tastes. And our band is called Hellbender, but with... Uh, sixes for the E's because Satan and uh, <laughs> it's on all platforms. <laughs> right on. Well, this was, this was a, a, a delight. Uh, I had no idea how this episode was going to work with this many people involved, <laughs> but um, this, this went great. And, you know, I, I, I thank y'all for, for coming in and taking the time to do this. And I, I, I do hope we get to cross paths at fantastic fest in September. Definitely. Thank Absolutely. you, Eric and Scott. And thank you, Trey, for doing this with us. Yeah, hey, thank you all. Many thanks to Team Adams family. That is Toby Poser, John Adams, Zelda Adams, and Trey Lindsay 
for joining us. And uh, once again, I'm going to reiterate, we were uh, kind of sweating that one uh, because yes. sometimes there, there's for multiple reasons. Sometimes uh, our recording software, the more people you add in there, the more likely shit's going to get messed up. And also then there's the other side of it where you have a whole bunch of people, you know, and a limited amount of time. Then sometimes you're, yeah. you're you looking only at have... some bad chaos, <clears throat> which yeah, is this... very rare around here. We usually like chaos, but sometimes there can be bad chaos. Uh, well, you got to toe that line, right? Because, you know, there can like in my uh, opinion, and I think we share this opinion because that's how the show is. We allow for crosstalk. We allow oh, yeah. for some some messiness to the edits because we want it to sound like an actual conversation. But that a little of that goes a long way. And it can go like south very quickly. So, yeah, I was definitely like, well, we'll do it. But I don't know what it's going to sound like. But it was it was uh, it was a blast. I love talking to those guys. And since we recorded this episode, uh, I got to meet them all at Fanda, uh, Fantastic Fest. They're, they're nice. great. Yeah, Lovely I, people. I avoided them completely, like yes. totally and yeah. very much on purpose. Now, now I, it's been it's been a weird festival because I've been there way longer oh. than than you have so far. I think because uh, I've had a little bit better luck with the ticketing system than you than you have. Yeah. Uh, and so I've been on the ground right watching now. shit a lot more. Uh, but I keep having people coming up to me going, oh, you finally see you. You're, you're here. Like, like, was this your first day? And I'm like, I've been here since the beginning. Apparently, I'm just uh, very forgettable. I think that's what I'm taking away from. from well, you're experience. not making enough of a spectacle of yourself mm. is the problem. If you had worn point. some of those outfits I picked out for you, the baby doll dress and such, you know. I need to striker. save something for the final night party, man. So. <clears throat> That's fine. Oh, you know what? Did I tell you what I'm doing at the final night party? Uh, he, I saw you sign a waiver about it, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, if you happen to be in Fantastic Fest and hear this tomorrow, make sure you go to the closing night party. I'm going to be doing something really gross and weird and upsetting, and uh, <laughs> I don't think everyone's going to like it. But, and legally um, challenging, too, hence that waiver. I can't, so. I can't say another word about it, but um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Speaking of looking forward to things, let's tell everybody what uh, the work. next couple of KingCast things are. You like that segue? Let's get into it. <clears throat> that was good shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you want? What? Which one do you want to take? You want to take... Uh, uh, I'll, I'll take the bonus? bonus. Why don't you take the main feed? Sure. Uh, in the main feed, we have a an author, an editor. I'll leave it at that. A, a horror <laughs> super fan, you mm-hmm. know. And this is somebody that uh, have I, I've seen in the mentions or the replies, you know, tagged on in, in the replies on our our social media feeds, and we've kind of interacted a few times. And I, and I've been wanting to invite her on the show. And I, I, it was just a thing that I kept not getting around to. And then I finally did. She said yes instantly. And uh, I'm very excited to bring her on. This is a lady with, um, you know, a, a, a strong voice and a strong uh, following amongst uh, King fans mm-hmm. um, who have surely noticed that she is followed by our show's namesake on Twitter. She's lovely. She wanted to come in and take on a title that we have not actually brought into the main feed before, which is Lisey's Story. So uh, next Wednesday, we're going to have her on and we're going to be talking that title for the first time in the in the main feed. I think that's going to be interesting because we have some notes for this one. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that our guest loves it dearly. So there might be a little friction there. Anyway, Ooh. I'm rambling. Tune in next Wednesday for that. 
Yes, and then uh, if you don't want to wait all the way till next Wednesday, then why don't you sign up for our Patreon over at patreon.com slash thekingcast, and you will get a bonus episode every Friday, including this Friday. Our episode will be on the short story, One for the Road, which you may remember as the sequel story to Salem's Lot. And we are bringing in a guest, a former colleague, a current colleague. I think it's former colleague. I think he's moved on from the blogging minefields now. <clears throat> yeah, he's uh, a former colleague because we're not doing the same. Neither, none of us are doing the same thing anymore. That's true. Former colleague and now author named Max Avery. And he just recently wrote a book that's way up Mr. Wampler's alley called A Masterpiece in Disarray, which is an oral history, a big, thick-ass oral history of David Lynch's Dune. Yes. Uh, it's a gorgeous tome, gilded page like ribbon and shit it's they 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 went all out for this one and uh he's a good guy really funny guest big time stephen king nerd has and we have a lot to say about one for the road so Mm -hmm. that'll be our bonus episode once again on our patreon at patreon.com slash the king cast and if you sign up for that you get not only our new episode every friday you also get access to all of our backlog episodes which are commentaries interviews we have an interview with michael whalen the artist of the original gunslinger that's still only exists there we have commentaries that only exist there and probably most importantly to a lot of our listeners the return of our stephen king themed rpg shelbyville and Mm -hmm. season two kicks off very very soon how soon it'll be there friday october 13th so getting kind of nervous about that uh, no, hopefully people like it. I think they are will. You, are you nervous too? Because I'm, I'm like legit kind of nervous. It. I think we're we. I'm nervous because we uh, uh, we had to delay it for so long. Now it's like it better like scratch that itch for the people who've been waiting for it for like a year and a half. I know so it wouldn't and have like, been as bad if we were able to to spit it out like right after you know. But I know, and we're we're so like you, me and Mal are so like deeply in love with the storyline this season. Like what if people don't <laughs> like the storyline, <laughs> you know, well, that'll like, be a them problem. Cause we like it. So. <clears throat> but this is a unique um, thing for me to be worried about with this show. Cause the show is pretty standard, right? You know, there's, yeah. there's creativity put into it, but it's not in the same sense. So I think this is a little bit what it feels like to, to push a, you know, a creative pursuit out in the world and be like, and, I'm yeah. really proud of this. And I love this story. And then, decide you know you find out if people like it or not i know now you're not going to be interesting. so tough on trucks anymore they had this exact same feeling no, on the trucks. people behind trucks can remain fucked you know <laughs> this is you know this is art that we're making over here as Anne Haitian might say anyway Absolutely. Yeah. yes i guess we'll see everybody back in the the main feed next week for Lisey's story and then this friday on our patreon we got our episode on one for the road with mr max Avery. adios folks the KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>